Brian. Good morning, everyone. Uh, if you have a Bible, can I invite you to turn to Luke chapter 22? I think it's page 1057 in the Bibles in the pews. Now, for those who are following our Essential Word series, you'll notice that we've sort of hit fast forward. Last Sunday, we, we spent the morning looking at and thinking about the dark days of the judges, those days when everybody did what they thought was right in their own eyes. And then last Sunday night, we listened to one of the greatest love stories ever told, the story of Ruth and Boaz. And by the way, if you, if you picked up the challenge from last week and you actually sat down and read right through the 21 chapters of Judges in one sitting, which is what I invited you to do, I'd love to hear your reaction. Okay, so do speak to me afterwards if you actually picked up on that challenge. But today, instead of naturally progressing to 1 Samuel, which is the next book in the Old Testament and the whole story of the rise of the kings, uh, what we're going to do is we're going to jump to Luke 22. And the main reason for that is that with Easter approaching, we want to begin intentionally focusing on the cross, which is, after all, at the heart of this story. It's at the very core, the very center of this one unfolding story of redemption that we as a church have been working our way through. And even as you think back to last week, there were definite and clear references to the cross. And so last Sunday morning, we ended up speaking about the ultimate judge and deliverer. And last Sunday night, Peter spoke about the kinsman redeemer. And so although this may feel a little out of sync, I hope it makes sense, but above all, here's my hope, that will actually help us to prepare our hearts and our minds as during these next two weeks, we journey towards Good Friday, Holy Saturday, and Resurrection Day. Now, the setting of Luke 22 is really important. It's festival week. It's the festival of unleavened bread, it says there in the text, called Passover. And so many people are in recall mode. They're remembering the Exodus events where God acted to judge Egypt and to save Israel. And so whenever they, have meet, whenever they meet during this week, they're thinking back to a time when God miraculously intervened into their situation and rescued them from slavery. And in this text, we've now come to Thursday of that week. And it's the day whenever the Passover lamb is sacrificed. And whenever the people actually remember that night years ago, whenever the angel of death literally passed over Israelite homes, sparing the firstborn. And the reason he did was because a lamb had been sacrificed and its blood smeared on the doorposts. And on this day, every year, the Jewish people would gather in Jerusalem, they would sacrifice a lamb, they would eat a meal together, and they'd retell that story. They'd retell their story. And in Luke 22, we discover that Jesus is one to eat a meal, a Passover meal with his twelve disciples. So let's read from verse 7. And as we usually do, we'll stand for the public reading of God's word. Luke 22, starting at verse 7. Then came the day of unleavened bread 
on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. And Jesus sent Peter and John saying, go and make preparations for us to eat the Passover. Where do you want us to prepare for it? They asked. He replied, as you enter the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him to the house that he enters and say to the owner of the house, the teacher asks, where's the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large room upstairs, all all furnished. Make preparations there. They left and they found things just as Jesus had told them. So they prepared the Passover. And when the hour came, Jesus and his disciples reclined at the table. And he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. And after taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among you. For I tell you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, gave thanks, and broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. But the hand of him who is going to betray me is with mine on the table. The Son of Man will go as it has been decreed, but woe to that man who betrays me. They began to question among themselves which which of them it might be who would do this. Grab a seat. Lots of of artists have have tried to capture this scene. Here are two of the most famous uh, images. The first is Leonardo Da Vinci's The Last Supper from the 15th century. The second is Salvador Dali's The Sacrament of the Last Supper, which he completed in 1955 after nine months of work. And they are impressive. But I wonder, is that how you imagine it? Is that how you imagine it as you read those words in Luke 22? For me, this just seems a bit unreal. A bit surreal. And therefore what I want us to do is just simply walk through the actual biblical text. Jesus gives Peter and John, who are two of his inner circle, he gives them certain instructions regarding the location of where this meal that he wants to eat with them is to be at. But he's not exactly explicit in his details. In fact, if anything, he's quite vague. He says there's going to be an unnamed man. He's going to be carrying a water jar. He'll meet you. Follow him. Tell him that the teacher wants to eat a meal in his guest room. And he'll show you this large, unfurnished, upstairs area. And incredibly, as you look at verse 13, they find things just as Jesus has told them. And that's important to note because it makes it clear that Jesus knows the future. He sees ahead. And one of the reasons why this is so important in this context is because it makes it clear that Jesus is all too aware of what lies ahead of him tomorrow. If he knew what would happen in every detail regarding the man, the jar, the house, the conversation and the upper room in two or three hours time, then it meant that Jesus knew exactly what was going to happen to him in just over 12 hours time. And therefore, the intensity of these moments for Jesus is unimaginable. As Jesus 
contemplates what this next day will hold for him. Which makes his opening statement as he reclines at the table all the more surprising. Look at verse 14. I have, he says, eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you. But why? Why? I mean, in light of what is now imminent for Jesus, and he knows it's imminent, why has he passionately longed for this time to come? And what it crystallizes for us is the mission and the heart of Jesus. Because you see, Jesus knew that he had to die in order to liberate his people. And although that prospect must have been, and as we'll discover in a moment, it was deeply disturbing, Jesus knew that the result, the outcome of this, would be worth it. And therefore Jesus says, do you know something? I eagerly desire to eat this meal with you. I really want to do this. Because what it's doing is, it's given Jesus the chance to make connections, and these are so important, to make connections between the Exodus events from years ago and what he is about to do in a few hours' time. And in order to help the disciples and help us to make those connections, what Jesus does is he gives his followers a unique way of understanding what's about to happen to him. And he doesn't give them a theory. He doesn't explain in any sort of detailed way what's going to happen. Instead, all he does is he gives them an act to perform. A simple meal to share. And he took bread. And he gave thanks. And he broke it. And he gave it to them. Saying, and please try to put yourself in the disciples' position in these moments. This is my body. Which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took a cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. And in the years to come, the early Christians would embrace these moments. And they would actually do exactly what Jesus did here in this upper room. They would do it on a regular basis as an act of remembrance, as a celebration of what Jesus accomplished on the cross in setting them free and rescuing them and liberating them from evil, from sin, from judgment and from eternal death. And down through the centuries, Christians have continued to embrace these moments as we are about to do in about 15 minutes' time. Christians have continued to embrace what Jesus did because in the simple act of just eating a piece of bread and drinking a mouthful of poured out wine, we recall this truth that through a death we have found life. But back to the scene. Because in Luke 22, and this is incredible, The profound and the insignificant words of what Jesus has just said. The significance of what Jesus has just done is completely missed by the disciples. And this is amazing. Because two issues come to the fore. And they grab the disciples' attention and they dictate the rest of their conversation. And the first issue is betrayal. 
that one of their number, according to Jesus in verse 21, is going to betray him. And Harold Philby once said, to betray, you must first belong. And so it's not some outsider who's going to sell Jesus to the chief priests and teachers of the law. It's one of their own. And based on the beginning of Luke chapter 22, we know who that person was. But the disciples here have no clue as yet. And so whenever Jesus says this, they look to one another and start to be, who's it going to be? Who's going to betray the master? Now, given that Jesus has raised the conversation about betrayal, it's no surprise that that then becomes a topic of their conversation. But the second issue they discuss is shocking. It comes out of nowhere. Verse 24. A dispute also arose among them as to which of them would be considered the greatest. Where did that come from? It's not the first time they've argued about it. But given the circumstances here, surely this was a totally inappropriate time to debate who was the best. Jesus has just been talking about suffering. He's just been talking about his broken body, his poured out blood. He's also just said that one of them's going to betray him. These are history-defining moments. These next 12, 14, 16, 24 hours are critical. But rather than taking it all in, rather than understanding the sheer scale of what's at stake, the disciples are arguing about who's number one. And Tom Wright, in his his brilliant guide to Luke's gospel, puts it like this. Imagine a football manager trying to prepare his squad for the game of their lives. They're facing their greatest opponents and there's a major trophy at stake. He needs them to be totally focused on the task in hand. He's outlined the strategy they must follow if they have any chance of winning. He's warned them about their opponents. But the minute he stops talking... They start squabbling about who's the best player among them. They boast about how many goals they've scored and they argue who did the best in which games. They quarrel about who should be playing in which position. They bicker about who should hold the trophy whenever the photograph time comes. Anything less like a team ready for a big game is hard to imagine. Well, the disciples, their behavior here is far more outrageous than that. And Jesus, as he has to do on so many occasions, he takes this opportunity to speak into their lives. And he challenges their thinking. He takes their mindsets and he turns this whole notion of greatness on its head. And he takes this opportunity. And it's incredible that Jesus has the ability here, given what he knows lies ahead of him. But he stops and he takes this opportunity to speak into their lives. And he tells them three reasons why their conversation about greatness is bang out of order. And the first is this. Your attitude, disciples, is more in line with Gentile and heathen thinking than it is with true disciples of Jesus Christ. And whenever people of faith, whenever people who belong to Jesus begin behaving, acting, and reflecting the attitudes and the actions of those who are not yet Christians. There's something badly wrong. Jesus' followers 
should be different. We're called to be countercultural. The disciples here were in danger. No, they weren't in danger. They were actually guilty of mimicking and being conformed to the pattern of this world. And secondly, their attitude was not Christ-like. Because in everything, they were meant to have Jesus as their role model. And so Jesus came not to be served, but to serve. And in verse 27, he actually says this to them. Listen, I am among you as one who serves. And so I'm not asking you to be any different from me. Jesus was the greatest. And none of the disciples would have argued about that. And yet rather than use his greatness for selfish reasons or purposes, Jesus spent his entire all too short life serving others. And that is true greatness. Greatness isn't the problem. Jesus knows and he knew that some people are great. Some people, in a sense, are greater than others. The, the critical issue is, why do you want to be great? And how are, go- are you going to use the greatness you've been given? Are you going to use it to serve others and therefore reflect a Christ-like attitude? Or are you going to use it to dominate and dictate to others and draw attention to yourself? Well, the disciples... They wanted to be considered great for all the wrong reasons. And here, Jesus has to realign their thinking and say, listen, follow my example. And then one of the other Gospels tell us about what Jesus actually did to show that in a very graphic way as he washed their feet. And thirdly, their attitude lacked perspective. You see, they were preoccupied with the here and now. The tangible, the temporary world. Whereas, says Jesus, see if you can grasp a long-term view, you are going to know greatness beyond your wildest dreams. Look at verse 30. Because he says, listen guys, you are going to eat and drink with me at my table in the kingdom that is to come, and you are going to judge the 12 tribes of Israel. I have no clue what that meant. And I'm not sure the disciples did either. But one thing's for sure. No perceived greatness in this world is going to compare to actual greatness in the next. And so the disciples needed a fresh perspective. They needed a reminder of the kingdom that is to come. And that's probably something we all need this morning. Because if we pursue greatness with only this world in mind, we will risk becoming me-centered. But if you pursue greatness from an eternal perspective, then you're far more likely to be the sort of person that serves others. In fact, you might even reach that place where in humility you consider others better than yourself. And that's a radical path to walk. And yet, that's the example Jesus has laid down for us. And so during the intensity of these moments, the disciples actually learn a life-changing lesson. But then Jesus drops a bombshell. And he drops it on Peter. And he says, Peter, Satan has asked to sift all of you. And he's asked to sift every one of you as wheat, according to verse 31. And it appears that Jesus hasn't refused Satan's request. 
and have no time to even begin to process what that means or what the implications of that are. But one of the outcomes, says Jesus, of the sifting process, Peter, is that you're going to deny knowing me. And you're going to deny knowing me three times before this day is out. But the one saving grace is this, that Peter, I've prayed for you, and I've prayed for you that your faith won't fail. And you see, when you are restored, you'll strengthen your brothers. And if you go back to the football illustrations, it's as if the manager warns the captain that he's about to have a nightmare of a game. But he assures him, you know something, it's going to be all right in the end. The captain then protests and he says, listen, I'm going to play a blinder. The manager says to him, listen, see, before half time, you're going to give away two penalties and you're going to risk being sent off. And Peter's head must have been spinning. And the rest of the disciples are reeling because this Passover meal hasn't exactly turned out the way they had imagined it. It's not the way they had envisaged it. And then we come to the last little bit of our story for this morning. Luke 22, verse 39. And let's just take time to read these verses, but we'll keep our seats. Jesus went out as usual. The meal's over. Jesus went out as usual to the Mount of Olives. And his disciples followed him. And on reaching the place, he said to them, Pray that you will not fall into temptation. And he withdrew about a stone's throw away, and he knelt down and he prayed, Father, if you're willing, take this cup from me, but not my will, yours be done. An angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. And being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. And when he rose from prayer and went back to the disciples, he found them asleep, exhausted with sorrow. Why are you sleeping, he asked them. Get up and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. There's one word, there's one activity that dominates that little section of the story. And it's prayer. Jesus instructs the disciples here, listen, pray. But don't pray for me. Pray for yourselves. And what I want you to pray for yourselves is that you won't fall into temptation. But what was the temptation they faced? Some people have just grabbed that little phrase and taken it to apply in all sorts of ways. I think you possibly can. But what was the temptation the disciples actually faced here and now? Well, Jesus isn't specific, or at least the text isn't. But many commentators reckon that the temptation the disciples faced here was to resist rather than submit to the will of God. See, Jesus was heading in a particular direction. He was heading to the cross, and the cross now lay on the horizon. And events during these next few hours would actually take him to that place. And as much as it troubled him, Jesus was fully submitted to the Father's will. But for the disciples, it's a different matter. It's going to be really hard for them to accept God's will here. They were going to be tempted to kick against it. And so Jesus says, you need to pray. And I actually think this explains why they fell asleep. Not because they were physically exhausted. Nor do I think it was because, and I think the disciples get a hard time from lots of people in this, I don't think they fell asleep because they were apathetic. I think Luke tells us exactly why they fell asleep. Look at it. 
They were exhausted from sorrow. Their hearts were breaking apart. In light of all of this talk of a broken body, spilt blood, betrayal, denial, and now Jesus has brought them to a familiar place, but he's gone off to himself, and this is killing the disciples. And it can't happen like this, they think. It can't end like this. So they must have been tempted to intervene, to actually resist the will of God. And do you ever do that? Do you ever kick against what you perceive to be the will of God for your life? I know I have. And it's part of my story about being here. And I think there is a real danger that actually we often know what is God's will for us in so many areas of our lives and yet we're tempted to resist it. And so Jesus says, pray. Pray that you don't fall into temptation. But it's not just the disciples who need to pray here. Jesus also kneels down and talks to his Father. And even in that act alone, there is another model to follow because here is the Son of God. Here is God incarnate needing to pray. And therefore, whenever you and I face situations as Jesus did here that threaten to overwhelm you, and there are some of you here this morning and you are facing those type of situations. Difficulties, problems, tensions, challenges the best and most important thing that we can do is pick up on the example of Jesus and take yourself off to a quiet place and empty your heart out to God. Because, and this is really important, the very act of praying brings strength. But it's this specific prayer that I just want to finish with as we lead into communion. Father, see if you're willing. Take this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. And right throughout Jesus' life, we know he's, he's, he sought to do the Father's will. In fact, he actually said on one occasion it was his food to do the Father's will. So it's not that in this prayer Jesus is thinking of kicking against that. But he does want to take one final reading of the Father's will for him. Because you see, this cup that he has been asked to drink from is severe. It's potent. It's actually dreadful. But what exactly is this cup that Jesus asks his father to take from him? And based on the rest of scripture, my only conclusion is that it was the cup of God's wrath. The cup of God's wrath that is to be poured out on sinners and on the unrighteous. And during this series and this story, we have come up against God's wrath time and time again, and it's a serious thing. And I have tried to emphasize this. And I have tried to stress it. But the good news of the gospel, the good news of this one unfolding story of redemption is that in suffering and in laying down his life on the cross, Jesus knew that he was about to bear 
the wrath of God for the sins of the world. And as Jesus considered that, it was a dreadful thought. A truly dreadful thought. And I don't think, as I say, I don't think we can even begin to imagine what it must have been like for Jesus to know that all the judgment and the wrath of God for the sin of the world was about to be meted out on him. And so he sweat blood. And as we come to communion this morning, and as we prepare to eat and drink, it's just that one thought that I want you to allow to filter through your mind in these moments. That it's because of Jesus' submission to the Father's will in absorbing the wrath of God for your sin. Something that Jesus dreaded, and yet he did. But because of it, we're saved, we're rescued, we're freed, we're redeemed, we're reconciled, we're reconnected, we're brought back into relationship with God. And so in this act that Jesus gave us to perform, this me that he gave us to share, I really want to encourage you to do it with grateful hearts. Till on that cross, as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. For every single one of your sins on him was laid. And therefore here, in the death of Christ, we can live.